Hello everyone, it's three o'clock. Welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Mr. Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey McKenna and I will be moderating this discussion. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each week to update us on everything Israeli. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for roughly 10 to 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We'll do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on the webinar, so I apologize in advance if we do not get to yours today. And now, with no further ado, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey. Um, as I've said uh, pretty much with every single one of these webinars, today was, uh, was a fascinating and crucial day. Um, we had the extraordinary and unique visit of uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to the region, well, to Israel only. He was on the ground for six hours in total. Um, he met with Prime Minister Netanyahu, with soon to be um, also uh, sort of a secondary Prime Minister Benny Gantz, uh, reportedly also with incoming Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi. And that was pretty much it. Uh, the most interesting thing as far as what we heard about it were the opening remarks between Prime Minister Netanyahu and Secretary Pompeo, where they gave the usual, you know, uh, perfunctory opening remarks, good to see each other, there's a lot to do together. The three areas they talked about, at least in the opening remarks, were Iran, the peace process and the work that Israel and the US are doing together uh, on the coronavirus front. What was most fascinating is the lack of any talk, any mention on what was the issue on everybody's lips is annexation and sovereignty. And I think that's quite telling. Uh, as someone who's been in these type of meetings before, as someone who's you know, uh, written many communiques uh, many press releases, uh, official government press releases. It's sometimes what's left out, which is just as important, and the language that's used. And the fact that annexation was not referred to, I think, is very telling. There's been a lot of talk about what exactly the US administration's uh, point of view is regarding annexation. We've heard very positive things. We've heard less positive things. I think there is a bit of a disagreement um, in the US administration exactly how to react or how much to push uh, Israel on an annexation or not. Um, you know, the, it, this all came to a sort of head because of the Trump peace plan, uh, the peace to prosperity uh, plan that was released uh, last year. And it said that Israel would be able to hold on to certain territories. This was supposed to be in, uh, in the context of some sort of peace agreement and there's been talk that uh, Israel would have to give a quid pro quo if it wanted to annex any territories on recognizing a Palestinian state and maybe even taking some steps uh, towards that. Um, and the fact that Mike Pompeo came all the way to Israel during such a difficult time, I think is telling. There were photos of just him and Netanyahu in a meeting, uh, as they say in Israel, four eyes uh, together. Um, and my particular feeling is he came with a message of caution. He said to Israel, uh, he probably said to Israel, Mike Pompeo is a good friend of Israel, that there are certain question marks over exactly what Israel will do, how much it will do, 
uh, in coordination with who, um, because again, you know, the word annexation was not used by any of the principals in this meeting. Uh, before he came to Israel, he uh, did a few interviews primarily with the Israel Ayon newspaper, which is very pro uh, Netanyahu, very pro President Trump, where when he was asked about annexation, he kept on repeating, it's not for us to tell the Israelis what their policy should be. He did, he did not uh, say when pushed whether he fully supported Israel's steps, unlike Ambassador David Freeman, who is a far more vocal supporter of annexation, uh, ideologically, um, if you look at his background. Uh, interestingly, Ambassador Freeman was not at the meeting today. There was something put out that he had um, some sort of respiratory issues, nothing too major, and it was confirmed he did not have coronavirus. Maybe the conspiracy theories amongst us will see something in the fact that he didn't get any FaceTime with uh, the Secretary of State. I'm not sure about that. Um, but basically, as I said, I think it would be very interesting. I've always been of the opinion that Prime Minister Netanyahu would not do much uh, after July 1st, because that's the date which the, um, the coalition agreement sets uh, that they can start taking steps towards uh, some sort of annexation. I'm, I've long been of the feeling that Netanyahu will do some symbolic gestures he won't go too far, but he'll do something to say that he's taken certain steps. Fascinatingly, and this really is quite telling, and I'm still trying to get my head around it, Yamina, the right-wing religious party, uh, will not be joining the coalition. Um, I don't understand this, and I've spoken to various uh, people high up in the Likud and Yamina, and no one can really give me a good answer as to why. To me, it makes sense to bring Yamina in. The, buttresses this coalition, he brings it to, I believe, 78 or 79, meaning no one single party can bring down the government, which gives Netanyahu that added element of stability. And also, by bringing in a party which is seen as more to the right of Netanyahu, uh, he will then uh, solve the problem of having a party in the opposition attacking him over what will uh, most certainly be a lack of maximalist uh, annexation plans. Um, so I don't really get this. Maybe it's a personal thing. Maybe it's simply because Netanyahu just doesn't have that many ministries, uh, government positions to give out, uh, especially as there are a lot of people in the Likud, a lot of high-ranking people who believe that they should get uh, some very strong ministries. These are being handed out as we speak. Um, the government is supposed to be sworn in tomorrow at 10 o'clock Israel time in the evening. There is still time to, for, to find a way for Yamina to go in. Uh, what's happening at the moment is there's a possibility of breaking up Yamina, bringing in maybe Rafi Peretz, who's the current uh, education minister, again, just to you know, devalue their position to a certain extent in the opposition. Uh, Rafi Peretz is a man who uh, doesn't really have such a big following, so some feel it won't be a great loss, uh, but it will give Netanyahu some sort of trophy uh, to say that he's broken up the four uh, people at the top of Yamina who are the most prominent members. Uh, so I, I believe that could well happen. Um, but it does seem that uh, Naftali Bennett, the leader of Yamina and, and Netanyahu have not had a good relationship ever since Bennett left uh, Netanyahu's office uh, about two decades ago with the Yelit Shaked. The two have had a very difficult relationship uh, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Uh, it's interesting that 
you know, Yamina would uh, be considered the most natural partner to a liquid, but they were certainly left to the end of the negotiations. The ultra-Orthodox parties were brought in almost immediately uh, after Gantz, the second ultra-Orthodox party signing formally in the last few hours, but the, uh, the smaller ultra-Orthodox party was signed within minutes uh, of the ink drying on the Gantz, uh, on the blue and white liquid agreement. Um, so the question remains, why is Yamina out? Um, it's one that I haven't been able to solve. I, it doesn't make sense to me. It could just be that they were trying to use leverage and uh, Bennett believed that he would be in any way. So he thought he'd try to raise his leverage. He wanted a, a very strong ministry. He was offered education, which is a position he's held uh, before. And one other ministry and perhaps a deputy ministry Maybe that wasn't enough to satisfy, as I said, this four, uh, four personalities at the top of the list. Um, but again, it's, it's a bit of, a, it's a, bit of a, a bizarre one. It's certainly one that I didn't predict, uh, but it, there is still enough time um, for this to be patched up. Doesn't seem like it would. Uh, some commentators are saying that as long as the education ministry is still vacant, which is the one that's traditionally associated with the right-wing religious party, uh, then there is a chance that as soon as Netanyahu appoints officially a minister to the education ministry, people say that that is the moment where it's absolutely dead, but it seems to be pretty much dead at the moment, but one never knows in Israeli politics, but it does seem that uh, this time tomorrow night, we will officially have the first government in a year and a half. We've been talking about this for a long, long time, but now it does seem like it's finally happening. Uh, as I said, Secretary of State Pompeo is in the region. That's a fascinating uh, element. Not much, as I said, came out of it, um, but we'll definitely hear more about it in the coming days. Um, and that's pretty much the situation. Iran, we talked about that last week, and we spoke about how a defense ministry uh, official said that uh, Iran is leaving Syria. We now know that that is not true. Iran is vigorously building more bases. Uh, they found a new base uh, on the border with Iraq uh, very recently, and Hezbollah have certainly rubbished this idea. Iran has come out against it. So it, as I said last week, it doesn't seem like there's much behind that. So it's unclear why that statement was made. Um, so it's definitely something that uh, Israel's keeping an eye on. I'm sure that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and Prime Minister Netanyahu spent a long time, probably the longest, speaking about Iran because it is something very much on their mind uh, with the US and the uh, JCPOA, the Iran nuclear agreement, exactly how that's going to play out. Can the US, as some are suggesting, get back into the agreement to, lead, to leave it again? So sanctions can then kick back in wider sanctions than just the US at, at this moment. This is the sort of strategy at the moment to see how they can hit Iran the hardest um, so I'm sure that that was probably the bulk of the meeting today, and that was one of the large reasons why uh, he came to the region. Um, so these are kind of the, the fascinating things that are happening today, uh, even in the last few hours and even in the next few hours. I'm sure there's fascinating things, uh, things to talk about that we'll be talking about next week. So with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right. Thank you so much. So we have a couple questions that came in. Why use the term annexation over something else such as um, extension of sovereignty? 
Um, well, in, in Israel, they pretty much, uh, in, in, in legal terminology, they pretty much mean the, the same thing. Uh, there are possibly slightly minor readings of the term, but I, I use the term interchangeably, which many do in Israel. Um, applying sovereignty, annexation, it, as I said, that it's, it's hard to see where, where the, the major differences are. Maybe they have a little bit of a political uh, terminological uh, difference, um, but I'm happy to use the, the term applied sovereignty moving forward. All right, thank you. Can you comment on how Israel may be affected by Turkey's increasing influence in the Mediterranean? Well, Turkey is certainly an, uh, a major player here in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, for many years, Israel's, um, I mean, we're talking going back to the 70s, Israel had a plan or a strategy to reach out to the non-Arab nations in the region. Turkey was one, Iran before the fall of the Shah, or the Iranian revolution was another one. And it certainly emboldened extremely strong relations with both of these states and others. Um, and obviously after the fall of the Shah and the rise of the Ayatollah regime, obviously Iran was, uh, you know, went to the other extreme and became the most implacable enemy of Israel in the region. But Turkey remained a very, very strong uh, ally in many, many different areas. Uh, that is until the Erdogan regime came in and Erdogan made a very special effort to uh, ostracize Israel, to break the relationship, to harm the relationship. Um, he believed that in doing so, he would be able to uh, engage the region as a major player. Turkey has always seen itself as a major player in the region, in the Islamic world. You know, there's a, a former foreign minister, Devatulu's theory of neo-Ottomanism, creating some sort of influence in the former uh, region of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, whatever the reasons are, Israel and Turkey have long since uh, ceased seeing eye to eye and the relationships have been damaged uh, extremely. I mean, there's been many events, uh, the Mavi Mara incident, uh, there were some other uh, incidents that I was involved with, where the, uh, not personally, but the Turkish ambassador, if anyone remembers, was put on the lower seat when he met with the deputy prime minister. I was working with the deputy prime minister at the time. Um, there are many, many uh, elements, but uh, Turkey is certainly not a great ally of Israel today. Uh, it is a problematic uh, regional player. It has very close relationships with organizations like Hamas, which obviously are terrorist organizations. Um, so it's, it's a very disruptive uh, part of the region. But again, so, a, a big part of it is seen in this competition between regional heavyweights, whether it's Iran, whether it's Turkey, whether it's Saudi Arabia. And a lot of their relationship towards Israel is seen in that context. Uh, there's certainly no love for Israel amongst many of these nations, but a lot of their actions against Israel or in favor of hostile elements to Israel is largely seen as a competition between these heavyweights and to who can control the Islamic uh, world, who can control the Mediterranean region, et cetera. Thank you. In your opinion, is the annexation a good choice? Within our own organization here at the forum, we have quite a few differing opinions. Uh, what would be yours? <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, it's a tough one. It's, there's different, uh, let's just say there's different elements. For example, the Jordan Valley. 
the Jordan Valley is the uh, valley uh, area between uh, the larger areas and built up areas of the West Bank, Judea and Samaria and Jordan. And going back throughout Israeli history, uh, certainly after 67, almost every single uh, security minded official said that Israel has to retain uh, sovereignty uh, over the Jordan Valley because of strategic reasons, not because necessary historic, national or religious reasons, but the Jordan Valley is crucial to have a barrier between Jordan and the West Bank um, because of various reasons, the stability or instability of the Jordanian Ashamite Kingdom of Jordan. Uh, you know, we see as nations falling one by one in the region, we see grave instability. The last thing that Israel needs is to have a contiguity between perhaps a future Palestinian state and uh, Jordan in the future, who knows what it will be. But the fact is that Israel needs to retain a strong military presence on its uh, furthest eastern border, which is the Jordanian Valley. If you look at it topographically as well, there's very important elements. So that's one element. The other elements we're talking about are the uh, uh, Israeli settlements, uh, the larger blocks. Those would have some strategic um, uh, interests and certainly most of them were built by labor governments with an eye to getting a foothold in certain areas uh, but largely they have some nationalistic or even religious basis if you look at the uh, Jewish community of Hebron for example um, so annexation over those territories would be let's say more symbolic uh, there are those obviously who believe that it's Israel's right to do so Israel's territory it's the cradle of Jewish civilization. So these are very important territories for, for Israel and the Jewish state and the Jewish people. Um, as I've said all along, I, I believe that there will be some application of sovereignty. Um, I don't believe that uh, Netanyahu will go too far. Um, but I do know that there's already been talks of how practically that will be uh, put into place in certain towns and cities, uh, Israeli cities, for example. At the moment, it's outside of sovereign Israel, so there are different laws. It's under the defense ministry, many of the laws in control. So if there is an application of sovereignty, it will become under, fully under Israeli law. So there is some practical uh, differences that need to be worked out. And from my understanding, these are already starting to be talked about. So it does seem that there is some movement uh, towards that. Um, I think where the Middle East Forum comes in is, you know, most people see the end game very similar, uh, that the Palestinian leadership will give up its over 100 years violent rejectionism of Jewish sovereignty. How we go about this, there's a difference of opinion, as there should always be amongst uh, academics and people, members of think tanks. So I think that's very healthy and it's been a fascinating to debate. And I would definitely encourage everyone to read all the different articles for and against uh, application of sovereignty annexation that have been put out by the likes of uh, Professor Pipes, Greg Roman, uh, Matt Maiman and others uh, over the last week and I'm sure there'll be plenty more. But robust debate is what we're all about. Thank you so much for that. If annexation does happen, what do you think the backlash from the rest of the world will be and how will Israel deal with it? Again, I, I, I think, you know, there's so, there's so much uh, width and breadth to this. Israel is not going to annex all of the territory. So the question is how much and what? Uh, and I think that will also dictate the reaction. If it's a relatively minimal, symbolic 
uh, annexation. Yes, there'll be outrage probably if Israel you know, annexes or applies sovereignty over even one inch of territory. Um, but I think it will be uh, more reserved uh, the less it does, obviously. Uh, the Europeans are already talking about um, what they can do in reaction. There are certain more extremely hostile nations like Sweden, Spain, Ireland, that are talking of taking uh, practical action against uh, Israel, uh, perhaps uh, taking action in the Israel-EU trade agreement. Uh, Israel and the EU have very close relations on, on the trade front. It grows and prospers every single year. Uh, but Israel has some very good friends more in the Eastern Bloc, the Czech Republic, uh, Hungary, uh, countries like that, who will definitely push back. And as we know, the EU likes to do everything by consensus. So it's unlikely that as a whole, it will do too much. There probably will be some reaction, but it could be that certain nations, individual nations will go further. Uh, there will be obviously outrage in the Arab world. But again, I think, I think we talked about this last week. It'll be interesting to see how far this outrage goes, because we saw when the, when the peace to prosperity uh, Trump plan was first wheeled out, there was, I would say, even uh, some positive remarks by individual Arab nations, but then when it got to the Arab League, there was a more hostile reaction, um, and annexation is in that agreement. So I think we'll see some condemnation, some you know, some very aggressive communiques and press releases, but what will happen behind the scenes is usually markedly different. And I'm sure uh, the Israeli diplomatic services out there getting the messages out, uh, even now, talking about what exactly this will mean practically. And I'm sure one of the very strong messages they'll be putting out is that this does not close uh, the door on uh, the possibility of a two states for two people solution, which, which will probably not assuage too many uh, grievances in, in Europe, but it will at least help to understand that this isn't the end. You know, this isn't the end game. This is just something which Israel believes it should do, but there is still an opportunity, if ever it's, it's wanted or needed or believed in, to, to go down the path of creating a Palestinian state. Thank you. Is there any pressure from the U.S. for Israel to wean itself from China? If so, will this happen? Um, the first, to the first question, yes. Uh, there's a lot of pressure. At one point, uh, Israel, uh, a Chinese um, organization business uh, was coming into, uh, which had, I believe one attended to deal with uh, one of Israel's new ports, or at least the upgrading of Israel's ports. I believe it was Haifa in the Haifa region and American pressure uh, saw to it that Israel rescinded that uh, particular tender to a Chinese company. Uh, what we see with the Belt and Road Initiative uh, that China put out over the last few years is really, really spreading throughout the world, creating this new Silk Road, creating a lot of, some argue, economic neo-colonial control across Asia, across Africa, and across Europe. And Israel, because geographically where it is at the end of the Mediterranean, is an extremely uh, important point. It's always been an important point for trade and commerce. Um, and the US and China are almost becoming a new Cold War. You know, China, uh, you know, a lot of commentators have talked about China becoming an equal world power in certain areas, in, in, in the economic area at least. 
so the US certainly sees it as a major threat in that, in that uh, place. And yes, there has been a lot of pressure for Israel to, let's say, wean itself off that relationship. There was even uh, a moment of brevity when uh, Secretary of State talked about that. And you could see Netanyahu sort of chuckled but a bit un with a bit of unease. So I'm sure that was even spoke about, uh, spoken about today. And uh, the US is not just having that sort of conversation with Israel, it's having a conversation with lots of its allies uh, in Africa, in Asia, and in Europe. Thank you. So we have an interesting question here. Can you reflect on suggestions that the new Omani Sultan had tried to mediate between Iran and Israel? Uh, would Netanyahu have rejected this? Well, I'm not really sure what there is to mediate at this point. Um, we're not talking about, uh, we're, we're talking about Iran, which sees Israel implacably as a foe, which seeks its demise. Um, so I'm not really sure what they would uh, negotiate over. It's like, you know, sort of, it, it's, it's, Oman is definitely uh, friendly to Israel. Um, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu was invited there. What was it? Uh, it was a number of months ago. It was probably a, even a year or so ago, maybe even longer. Um, and that was a sign of the growing uh, relations between Israel and the Sunni, uh, let's say, pragmatic Arab world. Um, and I'm sure that there were offers uh, from some of the uh, countries in the region to, to moderate between Israel and Iran, but I don't think there were probably. Uh, serious. Perhaps there was some suggestions that someone could be the go-between to lower tensions between the nations, perhaps, but I, I can't imagine uh, any sort of negotiations between Israel and Iran at this point. Understood. Thank you. Um, is there any update on the coronavirus treatments being developed in Israel? Um, I think it was the WHO uh, who came out the other day and talked about there was dozens of uh, very good candidates for uh, vaccines around the world and said that there's probably only around 10 which really are at an advanced stage. They didn't go into details exactly which those are. There is a couple of Israeli companies that will certainly be in those dozens of uh, possible vaccines. Um, you know, I, I read as much as anyone else. I'm not a scientist. I don't know what's the most advanced uh, candidate. Um, I've heard it could possibly come out of Germany, could come out of the US, could come out of other places. Um, there's a competition. I think it's very good for all of us. Uh, Israel certainly is batting, uh, you know, well above where it should be in, in that particular area. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if Israel, an Israeli company, was one of the first to come out with a vaccine. But uh, that remains to be seen. And it seems like it's still many months, if not a year away. Thank you so much. We did get two questions in about the appointment of Erdan. Would you care to comment? It's an interesting one. Um, you know, Netanyahu is, a, we've talked about this a lot, he's a very wily politician. Um, and one of the reasons he's been able to stay in power for so long is because he ensures that anyone who is a threat to his reign um, gets, let's say, pushed off track. Uh, we saw that. Uh, with many others, we saw that Gidon uh, Saar in the, in the past. We know the fact that the current uh, Israeli uh, ambassador to the UN, Daniel Danon, was the only person 
serious challenger uh, to Netanyahu, constant serial, uh, serial challenger to him in the Likud. He never really got to the numbers that would seriously threaten him, but it was certainly uh, eased some of the opposition within the party to send him over to New York. So the fact that Erdan, who is definitely a player uh, in a post-BB scenario, is being sent abroad is, is not a surprise that Netanyahu would, would try it. The surprise, I believe, is that Erdan accepted uh, because he was offered this position many times in the past. It seems now to be sweetened a little bit that he'll also at some point be appointed as Israel's uh, ambassador to the US and sits in Washington. I'm not sure if he'll hold both of those positions at the same time. It's not unprecedented. Abba Evan has done that in the past, and there are a few other countries that do that, but usually much smaller. Um, but if you also look that two of his other main challengers, um, Israel Katz, is going to be in finance, and possibly Yuli Edelstein, they're talking about health. Now, health and finance are very high-level ministries, but they're also ministries which you'll kind of put up almost to fail. We've seen many finance ministers in the past who have gone into that very popular and come out extremely unpopular. Um, so Yisrael Katz, sending Yisrael Katz to the finance minister is a very clever strategic move and possibly really Edelstein to health, especially at the time of coronavirus. Again, when we know that if things go well, the prime minister takes all the credit when things don't. He obviously uh, stands out of the limelight a little bit. So I think that, again, we see very much some of these appointments, whether it's uh, government ministries or ambassadorial positions, are usually used in this, uh, let's say this, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, dare I say it, um, uh, that Netanyahu uses to make sure that he's the undisputed uh, leader that he could and remains prime minister as long as he wishes to. I very much appreciate the reference. <laughs> All right, well, we have come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again so much for joining us to update us this week, Mr. Perry. Thank you. On Friday, we will be having a webinar at 1 p.m. Eastern with Dr. Amatsia Baram discussing Iraq and turmoil. What does the future hold? Thank you again for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.